Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find more out about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Today's guest is Scott Shermer, a writer-director known for uh, more than a few really good indie films, um, some suspense thrillers in there, possibly borderline slasher, uh, <laughs> two of which are, which are uh, found, more recently, The Batman, and uh, yeah. Welcome, Scott. Thanks. Good to be here. Anything you want to plug at the start of the interview? I don't have anything to plug right now. I did the Batman in 2018 and 2019. I took off, and 2020 is looking like another great year to take off from <laughs> any kind of extracurricular activity. Yeah. 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 We're almost halfway through this year anyway, so you know it might just be a good time for garbage year. Just gonna check, yeah. kick, kick back, and relax. Would you like to plug anybody else's stuff? Friends? Oh my gosh. The, uh, they'll get offended. I, if I start, then I couldn't stop. Um, <laughs> right, like who didn't make the list? Right. My friend Brian's got a movie called uh, Jesse's... I can never get the full title right, and I hope he'll forgive me. Jesse's Super Normal Regular Average Day. Yes, something that like that. It's available at my website, scottshermer.com. If you go to scottshermer.com, you can pick up copies of almost anything I've been involved with except uh, Harvest Lake because it's out of print. But mine and Brian's movies are both available there and uh, hopefully I'll be able to add some other filmmakers stuff there in time. Oh, yeah. And if I can say one uh, phrase to uh, in- encourage anyone to check out Jesse's, the rest of the title, which I can't remember. It's, um, yeah, Topless Chainsaw Wielding Nuns. There you go. That's that's incentive enough. Three of them, yeah. Yeah. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> That's Brian. We don't have similar <laughs> tastes, but we do have a similar work ethic, and we got along really well behind the cameras. It's funny to me because we're, we couldn't be more different as uh, storytellers, I think. Hmm. All right. Before we get started, a little information for you and the listeners. Uh, these are your trigger warnings. We're going to be talking about horror movies, which could involve anything from murder, rape, suicide, child abuse. There will be F-bombs. So if you're not prepared for that, please go take care of yourself and come back. Otherwise, enjoy me saying fuck. Fuck, fuckity, fuck, fuck, and and other such things. I'm gonna say pussy. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> it's actually my favorite word. I don't. It's not even what it is, what it represents. It's unfortunate that it's a, a bad word, but I actually think it's the most beautiful word phonetically that a human being can say. Pussy. Mm. It's just so like the buildup of pressure behind your lips. And then the sultry, I don't know, it's sexy how you release that pee. Puh, puh, your vital life essence is coming out. And you love it. You love that you're giving this life essence into the world. So you go, see, pussy. It's like, yes, I'm dying a little, but I love it. Pussy. Yeah, yeah. See, it's like half death rattle, half celebration. Yeah. My second favorite word is cheese. Hmm. Hopefully not together. Yeah, they never would have been Yes, no Fomoda cheese, please. <laughs> Sorry. That was bad. You had to, I know. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to. All right, so Scott, in this, uh, in this interview, we'll be asking three sets of questions covering your childhood, teenage years, and adulthood to basically find out what it is about horror that you like. Maybe some things about horror that you disliked, things that scared you as a child or as an adult, and so on and so on. 
the idea being that if we interview enough people, we might find some interesting common threads or, or possibly have some learning experiences, which we have along the way. We'll be coming at the questions from multiple angles, sometimes triggering other memories. You know, it's, it's like sometimes you, you discuss one thing in one of the phases and you forgot about it and you didn't, didn't even really think about that. All that being said, uh, not meant to be a therapy session. So, you know, <laughs> on the conversation, if at any time you just don't want to talk about something, you can just say pass. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's like, what am I waiting for? What's this going on? <laughs> it's fun. Um, so starting off with childhood, what are some uh, some memories that you have of childhood horror rise? Like uh, anything, anything that scared you or, or influenced you as a child regarding horror? I think about Bigfoot a lot because I grew up in the late 70s and through the 80s. And in the late 70s, Bigfoot was just a huge, huge pop culture thing. But it wasn't really pop culture, from at least from my child perspective. Bigfoot was real because I had family members telling me stories about Bigfoot sightings. Aunts and uncles that would be coon hunting in the woods with the dogs, and they'd hear weird, unearthly noise, and the dogs would run away. And I had one great aunt that swore Sasquatch was in the yard staring at her one day. And mm -hmm. so these became very real stories. And at that point, too, on the news, like the local news would report about Sasquatch sightings. So it, was, it just seemed real. And yeah. my grandparents took me to a movie called... Um, Sasquatch, the Legend of Bigfoot. It's a good title. And yeah, and uh, that was the first horror movie I think I ever saw, even though it's very tame. Um, but it was very scary for a. I guess I would have been five, maybe or six. So that movie's always kind of stuck with me. So Bigfoot was my boogeyman growing up, and we always lived in rural farming areas in Indiana. Yeah. So there was a lot of woods and everything. So the woods were always scary to me as well. And yeah. um, tornadoes, actually, also. And I think to this day, I still have, when I do have a nightmare, which I don't have very often, it tends to be about uh, apocalyptic events way far beyond human control, like mm -hmm. aliens coming, like huge alien hands literally coming out of the clouds and clawing the earth, and everyone's trying to escape that kind of a thing. Um, I don't have nightmares about Bigfoot anymore, but I am still interested in making a Bigfoot movie. Except for the fact that everyone and their dog has made one at this point. There are so many. I and mean, they're so bad by and large, too. It's kind of disappointing. I don't know. What was it? Primal Rage? I think that, that was pretty interesting. It was a, a good take on it. How there were, like, spoilers. There, there was a tribe of Bigfoot at the end. Mm, I haven't seen that one. I actually Gosh. liked um, Exists from the Blair Witch director. I thought yeah. it was pretty good. I didn't think it needed to be a uh, found footage movie, but it, it at least portrayed Sasquatch in a scary manner, which I haven't seen all too often. Was that the one that uh, didn't Bobcat Goldthwait direct a Bigfoot movie too? He did, but it was more of like a a, a faux documentary, mm -hmm. and the Bigfoot spoiler alert didn't mm. actually turn out to be a Bigfoot. I think it just turned out to be a feral woman. It was, it was it was kind of strange. I wasn't a huge fan of that one. Yeah, I could see that happening. You know, if the hair grows really long, then it kind of looks rather Sasquatchish. Yeah, she had long hair. We still are fleetingly at the end. So, in childhood, other than Bigfoot, any um... media-wise, like movies or, or stories yeah, or media novels? Yeah, media-wise, I think my parents conceived me 
after going to the drive-in and seeing a horror movie, they thought it might have been The Hills Have Eyes, but the dates of release don't really match up with when I was born. They Mom almost miscarried me in Florida, as a matter of fact, when she saw The Exorcist down there. Hmm. And um, then as I was growing up, they didn't really refrain from taking me or my little brother to horror movies. We saw Scanners. Nice. Um, I remember at least seeing the trailer for The Shining. I don't know if I saw the whole movie. And um, even when I was 12, they would take us to see movies like Platoon um, or uh, Trading Places, Boobs, things like that. They, I don't know. I don't know why. I, didn't, I don't think it hurt me or my brother at all to be exposed to that sort of thing at all. So I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing if you know your kids well enough that they can handle that kind of stuff. But my point in saying all that is that horror films didn't really affect me. Mm-hmm. The the ones that got to the borderline of affecting me were after we became Jehovah's Witnesses, oh. which was not a fun experience, but my mom's family was in it and they kind of pulled her into it. And then my brother and I had to go. My dad never did participate. He was like, oh, this is all bullshit. But um, while we were the Jehovah's Witnesses, it was very frowned upon to have horror movies or even sci-fi or fantasy in the household. And my dad rented the faces of death. <laughs> wow. That's, and I think uh... Evil Dead 2. And um, mom made us put those videotapes out on the porch in the winter because she wouldn't let them stay in the house overnight. <laughs> <laughs> but the How faces of death kind of, um, I was, uh, that was 84, 85. So I was 10 or 11. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the religious stuff turned out to be scarier because even as like a 10 or 11 year old, I saw this cult behavior. All these people would get together and go door to door on the weekends and selling magazines to vulnerable old people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I could see that the, the cult got together, I think, four times a year. And we got out of school to go to these big conventions where they would give some sermons and stuff. But at the end of each of those days, we all had to line up and buy books. And even as like an 11 year old, I could like, this is just a book selling gig. These (laughs) people are only here to sell books. Like that's Mm -hmm. the only reason we're here. I I was aware of capitalism at that point. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was all such bogus bullshit. And by the time my mom uh, decided, okay, we need to get out of this. It was a little bit scary because the Jehovah's Witnesses believe if you leave the congregation, you're tainted. Demonized is the word they would use a lot. And they would do everything to try and keep you from leaving the organization because if you did leave, no one within the organization could ever have any contact with you again. And she had a sister and a father that were in the organization and so technically she's not really allowed to speak to those people anymore. Although I think over the years she has reestablished contact with some of them. Wow. And I remember being there one night where one woman was crying hysterically and I asked, why is she in hysterics? And I found out it was because her son had just been excommunicated. And so she was now expected to never communicate with her son again. So it's kind of scary. The one thing I do respect about the Jehovah's witnesses though, is that they don't baptize at birth they wait until you're old enough to make that decision, to make that commitment, and uh, to have all control of your faculties when you make it, right. so that you know what you're getting into. So my mom was baptized, but me and my brother never were. So we wouldn't be treated the same way that she would be. 
yeah. if she decided to leave the organization. But when she did decide to go, there were a couple of Sundays where me, my mom, and my brother would hide in a closet in the middle of our house because Jehovah's Witnesses were around the house, knocking on the doors and windows, trying to save our souls. So wow. that's some scary shit. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's got a little bit of that cult aspect to it. And it's, <laughs> in its own right, it's just, by default, kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Hey, before we go further, um, I just wanted to ask, I don't know, is it your bird in the background, or are you playing with a lighter? Oh, it probably is the bird. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I was just wondering because if it was you playing with lighter, I'd say, you know, stop yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Cushing's usually quiet, but now that you mentioned, I have my headphones on, so I can't hear him as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try and put him on my shoulder. There he was again. Mm-hmm. He clucks. He makes weird little clucks and quacks. <laughs> Be quiet, Tweety. <laughs> He's my quarantine buddy, named after Peter Cushing. I recognize the so name. Back to horror. He's a hammer horror icon. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing made a bunch of movies together. Yep. He was also uh, Moff Gideon, I think. Tarkin. Grand Moff Tarkin. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, Moff Gideon's from from the show. That's that's fresh in my mind. <laughs> okay. That I recognize, definitely. Grand Moff Tarkin. That guy. Yeah. Anyway, back on track. <laughs> I think um, one of the questions was, did you have any uh, scary dreams as a kid? But I think you kind of covered that one with the Bigfoot dreams, right? Well, the apocalyptic type dreams um, and tornadoes. Yeah. Tornadoes were scary because we would be like in the eye of them at some points, or not the eye, but we would just be in that creepy calm and the sky is yellow and there's no wind movement. And that's mm-hmm. like the perfect time. And I just remember the, the fear in my mom's voice, like everyone get in the basement and stay in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, there were tornado alley is pretty much where I grew up. They called this track of where a bunch of tornadoes went through in 74 the year i was born tornado alley and uh, i heard so many stories about that i was only a month old i think when all the tornadoes hit in 74 and uh, i was at my grandparents house next to the ohio river my parents were up in uh, madison on top of the hill and um the tornadoes knocked all the trees down so when my parents tried to get back they couldn't uh, in a car so they had to walk a couple of miles over fallen trees to get to my grandparents house not knowing if the farm would still be there if i would still be there if the tornado had hit us or not but we had a cellar there we had a cellar so my great-grandparents my great-aunt and me and um, we were all in the cellar and we were safe and i remember my great-aunt telling stories about looking up out of the cellar and seeing the bottom of the ohio river because the water had parted the tornado had pushed all the water to the sides wow and eventually we got back together so i was sort of like the tornado and me being born in the same month were kind of a a thing that married us together i think (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i have dreams about tornadoes a lot too interesting yeah so to go back to the horror movies and stuff you said that uh you know because of the way you were exposed to these they didn't I guess they didn't really scare you. Um, I'm guessing your parents must have imparted some wisdom to you about them, uh, you know, not being real or something like that. Or, Yeah, we didn't watch horror movies. I mean, I told you my dad rented those movies, but that was really out of the ordinary. Uh-huh. He didn't – when they were dating, when my mom and dad were teenagers, I know they saw a lot of horror movies. But it seemed like for whatever reason growing up, it was not – our bag. I got exposed to almost every other kind of movie through going to movies with my dad, my mom, or my grandmother. 
all the bases were covered, but no one really cared that much for horror. And while I was growing up in the 80s, the only horror that was really in pop culture were slasher movies, it seemed. There yeah. were occasionally some supernatural things, but they were really kind of family-oriented, like Poltergeist or Gremlins movies that I love and never even considered horror when I was growing up. Horror to me was Freddy, Jason, and the slasher stuff, The Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And I thought those were silly. <laughs> Which, you're not um, wrong. They were. Yeah, uh, they are. But I didn't give them the time of day as a child. I didn't like horror. It wasn't until college when I was talking to some roommates about horror and I was telling them that I didn't like it. I thought it was a silly genre. And they said, well, you just haven't seen the right horror movies. And uh, Brian and Jeff and I went to the video store and we rented the original Texas Chainsaw. I hate that I even have to say the original in front of it. <laughs> so I'm not going to tonight. <laughs> so we rented Texas Chainsaw and uh, Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. And I watched both of those, uh, Evil Dead 2, uh, for a second time. And I loved Texas Chainsaw. It had a profound impact on me. It's one of my two most favorite movies of all time now. It's this thing I'll always be chasing and never be able to achieve as well as they did back when they shot it. Um, but then I saw, okay, yeah, horror can be good. And then I decided, well, you know what? The stories that I wanted to tell at that age in college were too ambitious to ever, ever bring into reality because I was into big sci-fi fantasy stuff. But horror was something I could imagine doing just like Toby Hooper or Sam Raimi did on shoestring budgets. And um, so that's what I decided to do because it wasn't for my particular affinity in horror, but it was just because I also liked horror. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of horror fans that only watch horror (laughs) and I'm like, well, I'm not like that. I kind of watch all kinds of things now. Even Westerns and musicals were the last things I could get into, but I got into them. (laughs) And, um, but horror is the, is the genre that makes the most sense. I think for starting filmmakers, because you can let the genre itself be the star of the show. You don't need big names or big stars. Horror is the reason horror fans go to see horror movies. As long as you have an interesting concept and you deliver up on a couple of basic expectations that people have, which, sorry to say, yeah, a little bit of gore, a little bit of nudity, you throw those in, it's almost like insurance. Beyond that, you want to try and tell the best story you can and make the best movie you can, but you have a built-in crowd that is ready to see your movie, no matter what it's about, no matter who made it or who, who is in it, simply because it is a horror movie. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, for starting filmmakers to, to, to use the genre as their starting base. And um, that's kind of what I've been doing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that puts it all into absolute perfect perspective, really. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's definitely the, uh, the genre that's easiest to start into because it's, easily, uh, it's easiest uh, fiscally, it's the easiest production-wise. You know, you don't have to go with any over-the-top spaceships or or large palatial estates or anything like that. Plus, as you said, you kind of have a built-in audience as long as mm-hmm. you include a few simple things, which, let's face it, you're going to include things like either or gore or nudity, if not both. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
they both kind of easily fall into horror movies, honestly, because we're being preyed upon in horror movies, our fears. And when you're really at your core, terrified and afraid, you're naked. You're naked. You have no protection from what you're afraid of. Naked is, is how you portray that mm-hmm. viscerally. And gore is just another thing like that. I think they naturally fall into the genre. Some people are clever about trying to get around them. But guess what? You're going to lose that base of the horror audience if you don't deliver on a couple of those on, on a couple of those things. For better or for worse worse but you're going to lose them for all uh i I just think it's a good idea it's called your insurance put some boobs and put some gore in your movie like like 10 percent. we we try to be equal opportunity too we don't just do boobs we do dicks too so we we put equal opportunity nudity in the in the movies and try to put a little bit of gore in there too and that's your insurance or you can kill two birds with one stone and you know have a couple of dicks chopped off there you go oh yeah like the the taint (laughs) <laughs> so many dicks explode and die in that movie. It's pretty amazing. And I'm going to Google that now. <laughs> <laughs> Tromo released it most recently. Hmm. While well, he's looking that up. Um, so to go back to childhood, um, you know, if you were with the Jehovah's for a time being, then I'm guessing you didn't participate in Halloween. Um, no. But you did say that your mother eventually did leave that. Uh, how old were you guys when you left that? Uh, it was really just for a couple of years, I think, fourth and fifth grade, maybe. By sixth grade, I think we were out. Okay. So what about before and after that? Did you celebrate or participate in Halloween before and yeah. after that? Yeah, before and after it was just like most, you know, Judeo-Christian families and all the holidays and everything. So, Did you particularly enjoy Halloween or no? I mean, it, it, it's not this thing that I am as nostalgic about as a lot of horror fans are. It, it was fun to dress up, but I usually dressed up like Star Wars characters. I wasn't <laughs> really a, a, I wasn't a mummy. I think one year my mom made me dress up as Fu Manchu. I hated that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I take care of one of the questions too, which was favorite costume, release costume. I'd, I'd say it sounds like it's safe to say that was Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu was least. I don't even know what I could say was was my favorite. It was always generic. We bought the store-bought stuff, the little vinyl suits that you wore over your regular clothes, and then there was yeah. that mask with the eye cutouts and a yeah. tiny little hole to breathe out of, mm-hmm. those those yeah. things. That's what we did. We weren't terribly creative. You know, and not every question is going to relate to every uh, guest. We just have them because you never know which ones are going to relate to who. So Sure. Yeah. Ooh, Terror. Do you uh, have any um, events as a child that uh, like like true life events that scared the shit out of you or anything terrifying? I don't know if they I don't. It's hard to know what impact they had. But looking back, it seems like they should have had impact. One of my cousins died when he was in the first grade in a car, a drunk driving accident. So I think that and one of my other cousins having cancer and having to have one of her legs removed. Yes. I think might have contributed to a preoccupation with mortality from a, a young age that maybe a lot of other kids don't think about. My brother and I would actually sit in our pre-internet, pre-anything kind of technological days and just sit at our desk and draw pictures and things. And we'd have little schedules for ourselves. And I remember looking at my brother's schedule one day and every day he would schedule for himself at the end of his day to worry about dying. That was written in so his like, schedule. This is a kid in grade school who would just like 
put on his schedule every day, you know, earlier in the day, there'd be like, read this book, watch this TV show, play outside, whatever. But at the end, before he would be like free from his daily schedule, he would devote 10 or 15 minutes to worrying about dying, which sounds hilarious on one level. But it also kind of reminds me of the fact that we've thought about mortality a lot back then and still do really. I tried not to think about it so much. Yeah. It sucks. This mortal coil, it fucking sucks. <laughs> Goddamn free radicals. Stupid. Well, gotta take the pros with the cons. Yeah. Yeah. Terror though, terror though. I was terrified of roller coasters. I they made me get on the beast one day at King's Island. I started screaming before it started. I was still screaming after it stopped. Strangers <laughs> were trying to comfort me. Uh-huh. It was, so that was worst. I can relate. Yep. Roller coasters are still not fun for me. And yeah, it's just you get pressured into going on them. And afterwards, you're just like, I still hate this. No. Nope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got used to them and, and I conquered that fear as like a teenager or young adult. But by that point, they just started physically hurting. At least the beast did because it's a wooden roller coaster. It's really jerky. It just hurt to ride that thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. As an adult. Yeah. We had one at Bush Gardens here called Quasi. Uh, and I think it was shut down for exactly that reason. Like, People would just complain about getting off the, the ride with bruises. Yeah. yeah. There was that one. And I'm trying to remember. There was another one I used to ride when I was a kid. It might have been, I want to say Chicago, but it was a really big white one. Huh. It's going to bug me. I think I can dig a little deeper since you guys have this psychological show. <laughs> what you got but I was a, I'm gay, so I grew up as a gay kid, and I, mm-hmm. I didn't have an identity for it. I didn't know that I was gay until much later in life, but I always had this suspicion that if my parents really knew me, they wouldn't like me. And that kind of is a terrifying thing to grow up with as a kid. And part of that, you know, the Jehovah's Witness thing before it ended. Oh, my gosh. I told my mother I hated Jehovah. And I got my ass beat so bad. That, like that really kind of drove a wedge between me and my mom. In my heart, it drove a wedge between me and my mom for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, now now we're good. But that that event, I was like, God, religion did this to my mother. I just like, I'm like, yeah, I don't need religion in my life. And that's a decision that I've never looked back on because I've seen mm-hmm. it do so many. It has warped so many people to do such awful things thinking they were doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most insidious qualities about religion is that people wield it as a weapon unknowingly a lot of times because they think they're doing the right thing. It's really insidious. Yeah, yeah, it's an unfortunate situation that it's just mutated into because, I mean, I, I get it. Certain religions are, are necessary, you know, if, if not in the most base definition of it, just to keep man from his nature of being an asshole. But most religions yeah. just have ideas that are supposed to be things that you – build your life around not not uh, things that you you know mm-hmm. wage literal wars and kill thousands for so basically it's a yeah. it's a good idea on paper that humanity really fucked up and went the wrong direction with a long time ago well i mean it's like anything else in the world i mean so for me spirituality is about the feeling connected with something other than yourself mm-hmm. whether that's another human being or animals or nature or universe or whatever but mm. you know anything that can be used for good can also be improperly used mm-hmm. and obviously that's something that a lot of people have improperly used so and when you talk about it 
that way, like spirituality. When I think back, I'm like, God, I mean, depending on how you define the word pray, I pray all the time, yeah. all the time. Like even as a kid, I would just always vet every decision in my head with that, that other voice inside my head. And why not just call it God if you want? Mm-hmm. If, if you do that, then I pray all the time, all day long about everything. Because everything I do, I always am like double checking, triple checking, vetting and revetting to make sure that it's the best solution to the problem at hand. And so I think in my own way, I'm deeply spiritual and possibly religious. I pray all the time about things. And I feel like I've had a really blessed life. I haven't had a whole lot of catastrophes or horrible things happen to me randomly. Knock on wood. I don't want to bring it all out now. But... I don't know. I can't say that I'm not a spiritual or religious person because I think those words are really hard to define and we all define them differently. Yeah. For me, the way I've always defined it is religion is an attempt to organize spirituality. So for me, that's, that just never made sense because yeah, one person can have a moment where they feel at one with the universe, but having, you know, get 300 people together in a room and go, okay, on the count of three, one, two, three, feel yeah. <laughs> like that, that. No, that just doesn't work for me. The fact that at that point it comes all funneled through one man or woman up on the pulpit, you know, then how do you know it's God? If it's being filtered through this one person, it, that, that kind of scares me too. So I don't that's know. That's different. Yeah. That's a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah, it is. So what about uh, teenagers? You had mentioned Texas Chainsaw and Evil Dead, but I think you also said that was college. That was college, um, yeah. Teenagers were horrible. God, I was bullied. <laughs> I was one of the nerdy kids. Um, I was in the smart class. I don't know if classes are still segregated this way anymore. It seems like AP. they probably aren't. Yeah, like AP or IB, the International yeah. Baccalaureate. I was in the, the smartest English classes, and um, the, the well, for lack of a better term, dumbest <laughs> math classes and sometimes hmm. science classes because I sucked at those things. I was really good with English and reading and literature and spelling and all that. But, but when it came to math and science, I just blew chunks. I had to have a tutor for a while in science and math. And But what that did for me is that it, it isolated me from some people, but it also made me closer to people that I wouldn't have been because I was friends with people on both sides of the tracks because mm-hmm. I, I had kids from the smart classes and kids from the dumb classes that I was friends with, <laughs> really good friends with, um, and still are friends with today. Um, and I know those are crude terms, but that really is kind of how it kind of how the, the cookie crumbled back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it got better over the course of high school, though. I think by senior year, there wasn't so much bullying going. And I'm grateful for that. I think a lot of that went away. And I went to college assuming it'd be the same, and it wasn't at all. So it might just be that Southern Indiana, where I grew up, was a horrible place in terms of all that. that because, yeah, very, very possibly. Um, but by, in college, I came out, and it was fine. It wasn't a big deal to anyone. It's exactly the best it's the best reaction that I could have hoped for is like people just wouldn't, they didn't care. Yeah. I mean, that was what late eighties, early nineties, mid nineties, 92, 94 actually is when I came out. I was in college for two years at that point Mm -hmm. and I was in an all male dorm and 
no one cared. Like uh, yeah. life did not change at all one bit and it was fine. It's only with some family and um, yeah, it was really just family members that were like stunned and shocked and in disbelief. And it, it wasn't a big deal. I think it's funny That's that good. way. Like in, in the early to mid nineties, it was like a lot of things were just a lot more easily socially accepted, like people's sexuality, race, a lot of things like that. And it was just like, okay it was understood and and very nonchalantly too whereas like nowadays things have gone further and further into like almost a forced pc realm where everything yeah. is accepted and, and you know uh accepted for lack of a better second term <laughs> yeah it's 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 a controversial thing to say but when i did come out i participated in this um panel at college where four or five gay people would talk to a class of of people, just students, um, about being gay because it was like this opportunity to ask people questions about things you didn't know about. And I just tried to answer the questions as normally as I could and make it not seem like a big deal. But I got the sense that there were one or two other people on the panel that were trying to make themselves sound very freakish, hmm. like talking about being a dominant or a submissive and talking on about anal sex and things like that too much. And I'm like, I mean, that's not who you are. It's not what you are. And I just felt like they were giving the wrong impression to focus on those things as much as they did. And I do think that might have been that who they are. <laughs> it, it's possible, but I doubt it. I, I think they just wanted attention. And yeah. um, it's not PC to say that kids want attention when they come out as something. But at the same time, I know kids. I I was one at least at one point, and I know that attention and celebrity and popularity are very important to people. So I can't say with all confidence that there are not some people, whether they're a teenager or even an adult, who don't do things like come out or say they're gay or something unusual just for attention. Those people actually do exist. I hope they're in the minority. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why my favorite way to react to that sort of thing is just so what. I don't mm -hmm. care. Yeah, like, oh, okay, cool. I don't care if so-and-so is gay or transgender or what. Like, they don't need a parade. They don't need criticism. They don't need criticism. They don't need to be beat up. They don't need anything. You should treat them exactly as you would anyone else. Like a, like a human being? Yeah. That's crazy. I think what I was trying to get at is to say that, as you say, there are people who will come off as extreme in order to meet whatever need it is that is inside of them, whether they feel like they need to be unique or because they want attention or, you know, whatever it is that's driving them to do the things that they're doing. Uh, I, where I was going with that is to say that, yeah, you know, maybe that is the, who they are in terms of the, the part of them wanting to be unique or wanting attention. Um, like you were, you were saying that the topic that they were harping on, maybe they didn't need to go into that much detail, but to me, it's, eh, I, I don't know how to word it. It's a hard thing to word and political correctness is something I'm scared of too <laughs> nowadays. I, I'm not even really concerned about the political, political correctness part of it. Um, Chris knows this, you know, I know you don't know this, but I was a, a bartender at a lesbian bar for three years. Uh, you know, I, I'm very comfortable talking about a lot of things. I, I have met a lot of people who, as you say, can be very extra. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> ah, okay. and, and it's, it's, 
and the comment that you had made was sort of like, yeah, they didn't need to go there. And I think my response was, well, you know, that's just you know, maybe who they are. Um, well, I think it was more on like the, the extent of the, which the, the topic they were talking about too. It's like, you know, you can, you can voice your, uh, your expression and, and your lifestyle and everything, but you know, nobody needs to know how many dildos and, 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 you know, rubber gimp suits you have at home. Yeah. Well, there's this notion, at least there was in the nineties. I had a, I had a friend who was very militant. Um, he called himself a militant queer even. And I was never comfortable with the word queer. I just, Oh, that's such a strange word. I don't want to isolate myself from people. I don't want to be queer. I just want to be like everyone else, but he was, and we'd have conversations and he would point out the fact that somebody's got to, you know, start the revolution. Someone's got to, I don't know, do like, like Rosa Parks and, and sit in the front of the bus and be the defiant one that gets all the attention and starts the shit storm. And I just wasn't that person. I didn't want to do that unless it was like, why has it got to be a revolution? Yeah. I mean, there's a time for revolution and there's a, a time to not have a revolution. So sometimes the militant people, I understand where they're coming from. And some of them have really personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when you get to know someone, you find out why they are the way they are for sure. It's yeah. legitimate. It's for real. But I tend to feel sorry for those people a little because they carry around that burden and they meet a lot of people that really don't need to be met with a revolution type attitude. They're already cool. In fact, I mean, to extrapolate that a little further, I feel like all the Friends that I've ever had, male friends, and ironically, in high school, all my friends were female, and now they're almost all male, and all the fans of all my movies, the demographics skew like 90% male, which is amazing. But all the men that I know who never gave a shit about gayness or homosexuality, they're all cool. They've all always been cool. And anyone who ever did kind of feel strange about it turned out to be gay later. <laughs> and that seems to be the case in politics as well. Anyone that's like ever shouting down gay people, they turn out to be gay themselves. We hate that part of ourselves and we deflect it upon the public. Mm. So if if I meet a if I meet a man and I don't know if he's gay or straight or whatever, but he doesn't give a shit about whether I am or not, then I know he is who he says he is. Mm. But if he's like, oh, I don't know about gayness, they can they can do their thing. But just be if they have any hesitation or reluctance about it, then I'm like, probably gay. <laughs> <laughs> what are you? Afraid and it of? almost always turns out to be true. Yeah, you know. I thought you were going to go in a different direction there for a second. You were saying about you know things changing. Uh, you know, I'm as you can probably tell by my voice, uh, middle aged white guy, and <laughs> but I grew up in the city. And I got into hip hop right at the start in 85, I was listening to hip hop and that was really the thing that I listened to the most all through high school and into college. Um, and having, and living in inner cities, I, I talked with a lot more of a street slang than I do now, but you know, if I get a little too too much alcohol in me, it starts coming out. Well, I mean, that happens too. you know, you adopt the, uh, the vernacular of wherever you're currently living. Like people move to the South sometimes and get a little bit of a twang after living there for so long. Yeah. But the point I'm making is now that I'm in my forties, you know, there's sometimes that I see people who are, you know, in their teens and and early twenties doing things that I would have done when I was in my teens or twenties. And I have 
notice that I will stop myself from saying something to them maybe because I realize that if I were in their shoes, I'd probably be the first person that they, that they would hate. Like who's this fat white dude, old white dude talking to me, you know, (laughs) but they wouldn't know that I'm not the enemy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of segregation amongst us. And and I think that's the downside of PC. I think PC started with good intentions. I think the whole movement started to make everyone feel comfortable and included. And when you take that, notion to its most militant end it really ends up encouraging and enforcing segregation yeah it's almost like it it went past the goal of middle ground of evening things out to be just normal and and went too far the other direction speaking of things that went too far in the other direction (laughs) yeah off on tangents (laughs) (laughs) i like So what were some of your big uh, influences in your teenage years of, you know, horror and in the media? You know, were there any movies that stood out to you or books or literature? You mentioned you're in AP literature. Um, I, I mean, I read as a kid a lot more than I do now, actually, but I don't think anything really other than Dune. And honestly, I only read Dune because the movie was coming out. And back in those days, the movies took so long to come to our theater that I would get impatient and end up reading the novelizations or the source material <laughs> so that I could at least know something. Right. I did the same so, thing with Ender's Game. It was, uh, the book was better than the movie. Yeah? Yeah. So I loved doing the book, and I actually also loved the movie. But growing up through school, I was a big fan of Gremlins, um, then Dune, then Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fell into Silverhawks and Thundercats pretty big as a kid. Um, Willow, I loved Howard the Duck, I loved The Abyss, mm-hmm. Batman. Uh, those were the big ones when I was in high school and growing up. It, it was never horror until college, but the big hor- I don't have a whole lot of really favorite horror movies. Um, I like a lot of them, but they don't end up in my upper echelon too often. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is divine, it's like the Ten Commandments oh, yeah. for me. Um, but after that one, uh, Evil Dead 1 and 2 are kind of up there just because I'm so amazed at what he was able to achieve and how artistic and crafty those damn things are. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pumpkinhead, I have a huge soft spot for because I oh, yeah. that's my favorite monster movie. I think that monster is just amazing. And it's the a animatronics there are just... Oh. Everything. Yeah. The way they put men, a man in a suit that way, just that's mm-hmm. one of the coolest monsters ever. And and the atmosphere in that thing. I wish Stan Winston could have directed more movies. Uh, what are some other horror favorites, Tweety B? I can't remember. Most recently, The Witch blew me away. Um, it's in my top 100 for sure. So for you then, really, your introduction to horror wasn't even in the teens. Like you said, it was when you got into college. Um, yeah, I was about so, 20. Yeah, sounds like it was more into adulthood then. Did you participate in Halloween as uh, as a teen at all? Any, any not really. No, events? no, no. <laughs> didn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know if I said this earlier in the in the interview, but we have a lot of questions that you know are there just because someone it might click with somebody, and if it doesn't click with you, that's fine too. I never. Yeah, I never. Horror, I think, is an anthem for a lot of people. The, the way that a lot of the a lot of teenagers listen to loud music that their parents don't like 
um, is sort of a way of defying and rebelling against your parents, this generational rebellion thing. I think that's true for horror movies a lot of time. The horror movies are alluring to people because you know your parents don't want you watching it. Mm-hmm. Your parents don't want you to be like that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people fall into that component. I didn't ever feel a need to rebel against my parents that way. Maybe is one of the reasons why horror never made that much sense to me as a kid. But I also didn't have good taste as a kid either. So <laughs> it could have just been that. Because later I got to watch Friday the 13th and the Halloween movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, mostly a couple slipped in while I was younger, but mostly I saw all of those as an adult, like in my 30s. And I like them. I actually really like the Friday the 13th movies for what they are. They're not high artistry, but they're fun. They're a lot of fun. And the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I think, are really inventive and creative. I really like those. The Halloween franchise, I'm not as big of a fan of because it's so <laughs> up and down. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a little bit. Um... Yeah. It doesn't hold together as a franchise very well. It's like Halloween but movies kind of have the same thing as Star Trek movies. Like the even ones are good or, or vice versa. I can't remember which. The even ones, yeah. But I, I like those things, and so I, I don't... I don't have a nostalgia for them the way a lot of people do because I didn't really grow up with them, but I do really like some of those things. Mm, that makes sense. But the last 10 or 20 years, I think have been boring. <laughs> like I don't, I haven't responded to a whole lot. I liked the descent and the witch. And then I've seen some like Eden Lake came out of nowhere and I, I really liked it and blood Creek that yeah. Joel Schumacher directed. I really liked it. Eden Lake was the one with, um, it has things. Michael Fassbender in it. Yeah, yeah, that that got in, uh, really graphic and dark near the end. I'm just like, it did. Know, fun suspense romp with a couple near a lake, and then holy shit, violence. Yeah, and he's in Blood Creek too, as this Nazi resurrected from the dead. Yes, okay, I didn't recognize that name at first. I, I have seen Blood Creek. Blood Creek was pretty good. I liked it. It was, yeah. um, you know, it, it had some moments where you could tell like it was kind of pandering to its audience, but. Um, Still, the special effects and cinematography in it were really good. As he said earlier, insurance. Yeah, yeah. But by and large, I'm not interested in The Conjuring or the Saw movies or almost anything that comes out in the theater. Like, all the horror fans today is like, we're, we have to go to whatever comes out. And I'm like, I don't want to see the next Annabelle movie or <laughs> yeah, anything was... called Sinister or... I don't know. Just none of them appeal to me. The trailers are, are usually what I see. And I'm like, nope, don't want to see that. Nope, don't uh-huh. want to see that. The first Sinister was okay. So what was it you loved about the Texas Chainsaw? It felt real. It, it, the fact that it was 16 millimeter maybe helped. Mm-hmm. The performances felt natural. Yeah, because they kind you of in a way were. Yeah, they didn't feel like they were actors. Like it felt like a real event unfolding before your eyes and the tone of it is so unique because i think you can watch it as i did the first time anyway as a straight horror movie but then when you're older and maybe more jaded you can watch it as a dark ass comedy Mm -hmm. and it works either way and i think it's really hard to strike a tone like that that will work regardless of which direction you're coming at it from so 
I, and it's a movie I watch, and every time I watch it, I don't love it any less at all. Yeah. If anything, I love it more. Yeah. It is a thrill ride. Like I'm literally holding my breath the last half hour of that whole movie. Once they've caught her and she's at the dinner table and trying to get away from them, it's just like edge of your seat. Oh, my God, where is this movie going? How is she going to get away from them? That no other movie has ever like ratcheted the tension like that for me. Yeah, I think the simple answer to Texas Chainsaw is it's just a really well-made movie. I mean, it's a, it's a concept and a theme that has been adopted by so many other movies now. It's kind of one yeah. of the first ones that started it. But, you know, even going back and watching it, it's just it's just very well-made with, yeah. you know, the editing and the lighting. and, and yeah, extreme like close-ups. The extreme, extreme close-ups. That's a lot of eyeball right. and a lot of screaming. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, un- yeah. it's uncomfortable. It's, it's who's just a well screen done. queen? Marilyn Burns, who the hell has ever screamed as much as she does in that movie? No one. I, I don't know how she survived that performance, honestly. <laughs> so what did you love about Evil Dead 1 and 2? The fact that it was friends going out and making a movie in the, in the woods yeah. on weekends, you know, and that they're as good as they are and as inventive as they are. They're like live-action cartoons. <laughs> the way that Sam Raimi... Um, executes the scenes, lays them out. Yeah. The, the camera angles, the, the hyper acting, the the weird bursts of comedy interjected with <laughs> horror. It's yeah. just manic as fuck. You know, you're um, right. It's kind of the same thing there. It's just it's the skillful way in which it was portrayed. But you know, it's it's just got a different theme to it. It's very cartoony, but yeah, very well done as far as that cartoon archetype goes. Like nailed it. Any, anyone could have done it. That's the part that really seals the deal for me is that Texas Chainsaw and Evil Dead are movies anyone could have done mm-hmm. because you, they just scraped together dollars and got their friends, put out posts on college campus and dragged everyone out, gave them very little money. Anyone could have done those things if they had only had the stories, the concepts, the scripts. That makes them even more appealing to me, especially at the time I saw them because I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and those were the kinds of films that I could have made. You know, I'm, I'm listening to the things that you're saying about these movies, but when I'm listening to the things that you're talking about liking in these last two, three movies, to me, it sounds like all the things that you mentioned are critiquing them from a filmmaker's point of view, from an artist point of view, not as, a, a fan if that makes any sense like the the only thing i think i've heard you say was that chainsaw felt real and the performances felt natural mm-hmm. um, so do you mainly see these movies from um a filmmaker's point of view or like is was there something that you that you liked about them from a horror point of view or is it mainly the the artist point of view I don't know if I separate out points of view when it comes to genre. The filmmaker aspect, I can definitely separate out. And I don't watch any movie like that the first time because if the story is not interesting enough to make me forget about that, then it's probably not a good movie anyway. Fair. But in terms of watching something as horror or not, I just I don't like to distinguish. I'll watch um, Steel Magnolias with the same frame of mind I'll watch The Nightmare on Elm Street. I just want to watch a good movie and a good story. Now, sometimes if it's Saturday night, I'm more in the mood for something that's maybe a little creepier, but I don't think I tend to judge things differently. I just I want them to have their own integrity. Usually a movie sets up its own sort of universe of logic and parameters within the first five or ten minutes. 
So you can be as realistic or as fantastic as you want, as long as you set up those parameters mm-hmm. well enough in the first five or 10 minutes mm-hmm. that you don't suspend my disbelief beyond that 10 minutes. Right. So I don't, as long as the movie kind of tells me what it is at the beginning, I go with it. I, I watch it under its own rules. I think at least that's how I try to approach it. No, I get that. Cause that's usually my hugest critique of any kind of movie. And again, across genres, I, I feel the same way. I, I give a movie, you know, maybe two or three of those, but once you're past the third, I'm not a fan, you know? Yeah. I mean, a horror is, is one, it's like a diet. You want to have a good diet and horror is just one flavor, one food group. <laughs> yeah. Getting nothing to cake. You need some comedy. I think you, I think it's sad how drama has fallen by the wayside and moved to television, but at least it's still out there in some shape or capacity. I mean, um, in a way there have been some combinations of horror and drama with Ari Aster's films. They're, they're a bit dramatic. For sure. Yeah. There, I, I have, I have this kind of debate with people all the time about what is horror or what isn't. And mm-hmm. there's all, Good there question. are always, there are always people that don't want to call good horror movies, horror movies, because like I grew up thinking slasher movies were horror movies. A lot of people have grown up thinking the same, that torture movies or supernatural horror movies are horror and nothing else can be. They can't accept the fact that silence of the lambs is a horror movie or that Ari Aster's movies are horror movies. My friend Sean, when we go to the movies, if it's a horror movie and she likes it, she comes out saying it's not a horror movie. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, can't be think a horror of a movie because I like it. <laughs> I know. It's like if it's good, all of a sudden it can't be a horror movie. No, it's just that there is a lot of shit in horror because it's a cheap genre. Hollywood knows that, that it's the cheapest kind of movie to make and it usually has the biggest profit margin because of that ever-reliable audience. So they think they can just throw anything together and it'll it'll make money because it usually does. But that doesn't usually yield the best results. I think rom-coms are the same way. They're so formulaic. They're cheap to make. You put a couple of halfway likable stars in it. They're all the same damn story, but people will go see it in droves. So I, I think it's fair to be hard on horror movies and romantic comedies both because they do fall rather conventional a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But man, when somebody as daring as Ari Aster or the guy that did The Witch in the Lighthouse comes out and puts their own spin on it, that's cause for celebration. And I think we're seeing more and more of this experimentation in the horror genre, and that's a good thing. I like a lot of what I see, but I haven't loved a lot of it yet. But you know what? You can't love everything. It's not a big deal. <laughs> and, and it's getting there. You know, it's progress. Yeah. But The Witch, man, I was so elated. I haven't had an experience like Brian and I went and saw The Witch together. And we were at the end like, whoa, yeah. whoa. One like of those that, moments where you just kind of like yeah. slowly turn towards each other in the chairs with this the, the same dumb fun look on your face like, that was good. Yeah. That <laughs> happens so rarely. Mm-hmm. I had that feeling at District 9 yeah. and Little Miss Sunshine yeah. and Return of the King. And I think that's it for this entire century so far. But that's just me. <laughs> I, I enjoyed Hereditary. I got a lot of cross looks when I dragged my friends to the theater to go see it because they were like, dude, there's a bunch of weird cultist naked people. What the fuck was that? <laughs> it was good. Oh, you mean Midsommar? Uh, both, actually. I think Hereditary ended with the uh, the cultists, but Midsommar oh, yeah, also yeah. had that, too. They were so similar. 
the two movies were thematically so similar that I think I was a little harder on Midsummer. Yeah. Because I just, but then in hindsight, if I had never seen Hereditary, I think I might have really loved Midsummer even more. Yeah, yeah, because they did kind of both have the same theme or or feel to them. It's the same director. Yeah. So yeah, if you hadn't seen one before the other one, you yeah. had a similar experience with them. And you could say, I think people could say the same shit about me. I do the same damn thematic material all the damn time. I need to fucking throw it away and get a new a new book. No, there were no clowns in Found. <laughs> <laughs> so of the the movies that you mentioned uh, having been experienced or exposed to in your adult years, did any of them actually scare you? Or was it all just uh, observational? I don't. That's a question I have a very hard time with because i don't like what actually scares anybody as an adult anyway well yeah but i know people who don't watch horror movies at all because they're scary if they watch if they watch one they will be scared or at least they'll say they are and i'll take their word for it but for anyone who actually likes horror movies do they actually really scare you i can i've been disturbed by them tweety cut that out I've I've been disturbed, but I don't know that I've ever been scared. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a concept that I I keep coming to with uh, these interviews. Is like you go down that rabbit hole of horror fanatic, and you watch this movie and this movie and this movie, and you get into the extreme horrors, the extreme indie horrors, and it starts off with looking for that initial scare that you got when you you know watched a creepy movie as a kid, but you never really get that because. They're not scary. They're just more and more disturbing. So you, the most you get is really uncomfortable. Yeah. I think, I don't know, maybe it's easier to do that. Scary. I'm, I just, I mean, spiders scare me. So I'm sure I'd be scared if someone fell into a pit of spiders, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's turn the question around a different way then. Instead of focusing on the things that scare you about horror movies, what are the things that excite you or, or what do you enjoy about horror movies? Okay, that's a good question. Hey. I, horror is heightened everything. If you compare it to drama or comedy, horror takes dramatic license. It heightens the scenario so that it's something out of out of the realm of possibilities in our everyday world. And I think that introduces us to the possibility of metaphor and symbols and allegory. And science fiction, fantasy, and horror, all three, have the capacity to to weave a fanciful tale that can be entertaining all in its own right on a surface level as an adventure or just a story, but can also work on another level as metaphor, symbology, or, or allegory. And I think those are the, the stories that endure for someone like me, because the more you watch it, the more you might get out of it. Like you might just watch it at a surface level once, but then the second or third time you watch it, you might be able to draw parallels and make it into like a political allegory for today. Horror in particular has a a storied history of being a product of its time. So someone today can go back and watch movies from the fifties and know about the um, atomic fear that everyone had at that time. The fear of space exploration um, and you can see the naivete in movies before Ed Gein happened in our world. And then you can see the boom in horror of the human killer when that happened. The slasher genre get, came out because we discovered that in ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. And some people are, I'm not as well fluent about the contemporary horror movies, but so I've read arguments about why zombies have become interested in, and more interesting to us in this, this century in the late nineties. Oh, yeah. yeah. That and any kind of apocalyptic theme, you know, uh, there, there's even kind of non horror thriller movies where, you know, they, there's a cataclysmic world ending event of some kind that's really popular nowadays. I also want to mention that horror in any decade is always interesting to watch in terms of the gender paradigm, mm-hmm. because men and women, they're also treated as products of their time from when they're made. And nowadays, there are a lot of interesting things being done where the, the tables are turned. What used to always happen to women is now happening to men mm-hmm. and uh, sex and fear go hand in hand. Sex is scary. I mean, letting someone else inside your body, literally penetrating somebody's body the creature growing inside you. I think sex is fucking horrifying. Mm-hmm. I really do. So all my stuff usually involves sex and horror because I think they're equal. Yeah. They're equally interesting and terrifying. Well, I mean, one has to do with trust and the other has to do with the violation of trust. So, right. Mm-hmm. By nature, it's intrusive. Right. But no, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, like the whole thing about like the whole, you can, you can judge time periods by what horror is popular there because Horror movies and the whole horror genre is always based off of uh, fear, but it's based more off of the common threaded fear or the, or the more popular fear of the time. So, yeah, you right. back on 50s and it's nuclear scares and the 80s, it was, well, nuclear, but more of like a mutants created from nuclear waste because we thought that nuclear waste at the time, you know, gave you extra arms and flying powers and things. Right. I think it's also interesting that horror started to parody itself. It, it, it's done it a few times over the course of cinema history, but it mm-hmm. did it at the end of the 80s and into the 90s. Horror comedy mm-hmm. kind of became a bigger thing than straight horror. And I wonder if that might not be a reflection of the fact that our society started to feel complacent and take things for granted. Nothing had come out that really scared us, maybe. Yeah, and gave us free reign to let horror become funny until something horrible like nine eleven happened again. Yeah, maybe like now a- we still have horror comedies, but we have a lot more straight horror nowadays. I think than we did in the late eighties, early nineties. I think the re I I think the reason that horror comedy is more successful is pretty simple. It's it's because both horror fans will go see that as well as people who wouldn't normally go see horror. So. Just based mm-hmm. on that alone, you would think the audience size would be larger. So yeah, uh, quite possibly. So do you have, as Chris likes to say, a horror crew now that you're as an adult? You know, do you, are there is there a social element? Do you share this with other people? Personally, mm-hmm. or professionally? Uh, both. I guess I, I definitely have a professional crew mm-hmm. um, because I know, I've met a lot of other independent filmmakers, and we almost all do horror. And they know actors. So professionally, I'm sort of in a big network of people. But personally, no. It it was weird, actually. Once I started, uh, after Found came out, my first movie I ever promoted at all, then I started getting Facebook friends. And it's got to the point where all my my Facebook connections are horror fans for the most part, like Mm. just overwhelmed with horror fans. And they all assume that I'm like them. They think I like heavy metal and faces of death and just horror 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 24 7 and i'm so not that way dude bro have you seen this movie begotten it's so metal oh i know and indie (laughs) movies too i i haven't seen a lot of 
indie movies and underground movies and people are always like oh my god you haven't seen that it's like yeah i'm they think i'm like in the club but i'm really not it's it's kind of strange so i wouldn't say i have a personal crew i have friend i have a few friends that are into horror pretty hardcore but I don't know. I'm a hard judge of myself. Somebody else needs to come, come and say that. Because now that you're asking, I'm like, well, shit. Dave likes horror. Mason likes horror. Arthur and Leah and Shane like horror. Brian, I think everyone does like horror, but we don't define our lives by it. Well, Arthur might. <laughs> Arthur probably really does. But it takes all kinds. Fair enough. I don't know. I, I would love to do non-horror, and Brian's also talked a lot about not doing horror movies, and he's trying to because Jesse's not a horror movie. No. Um, and neither was Space Babes, really. And I am I say, good luck, man. I'm, I really hope you can do something people want to see because it's just hard to to reach a market if you don't have a horror movie. But we're all still interested in horror. All the people that I work with with any regularity if a good horror script came along we'd all be down to do it and it'd have to be one hell of a compelling drama mm-hmm. or comedy mm-hmm. for us to want to do it and i have a, a suspicion that we'd end up putting horror in it <laughs> <laughs> so not speaking on horror now uh any genre and not asking about your favorite just numerically speaking um what movie have you watched more t- more than any other Call it Desert Island movie. I can't say the one, but I can probably say five. The 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 small handful of films that I rewatch and rewatch and rewatch all the time. <laughs> Gremlins. Okay. Pumpkinhead. Mm-hmm. Poltergeist. Willow. Mm-hmm. And The Secret of Nim. Ah, Ooh. yes. Points. Props for that one. That's... <laughs> and Jaws. I watch Jaws a lot. <laughs> The first one, right? Oh, yeah. Those are ones that I never get tired of. I just I can watch them anytime. Back to the Future, if it's on, I can watch that all the way through. Mm-hmm. Last Crusade is not my favorite Indiana Jones, but f- for whatever reason, it's the most rewatchable one, I think. Hmm. But You know, it's funny. We've been going through this interview, and the vibe that I've been getting from you is that you're really not a horror fan. But when you list the, the, the six... <laughs> The six uh, <laughs> films that you watch more than any other, four and a half of them are horror films. I mean, uh, Will is not really a horror movie. It's more of a fantasy. I wasn't counting that one. Oh, <laughs> Gremlins, Pumpkinhead, Poltergeist, Jaws, and Nim. Hmm. Yeah, Nim is they're, not they're, horror. They're, Nim's animated. I said, I said four and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, four yeah, and yeah, a half. That yeah. I don't. I don't consider myself. A, I mean, I'm a horror fan in as much as I'm a fan of movies. You know. But, but that's why. I, but that's why we ask, like, of not not counting genre, but numerically speaking, what have you watched more than any other? And mm. you're still putting four or five of the top six in horror. So yeah, I just think that's really interesting. Happy coincidence. It's, it's irony. <laughs> I mean, horror is a big part of me. I, I would be if you, if you took the horror out of my movies that I love, it'd, it'd be a big gaping hole. It would, it would, it would hurt. Like, I don't know if, if the, I don't know if my love for movies would survive if you were, if you took the horror part out of it. it but, which is, but that's really interesting to me because if like thinking back on the most of the, you know, this interview, <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know. You seem, well, like, it's just not a cultural thing with me. I, I don't 
love carving pumpkins on Halloween or going out and dressing up for Halloween. Or I know people like that who wear black all the time and are horror horror every day of the year. And they're some of my good friends, but it's just not how I am. A lot of people talk about me like I'm that way. God at work. They, they know what kind of movies I make and, and they always introduce me to people as a horror filmmaker. And I'm like, no, oh, well, you can do that. That's fine. But it's like, but it gives people the wrong impression. They're like, oh, if Scott's going to tell us a story, it's going to be something deep and disturbing and dark and terrifying. And I'm like, not always. I've got some pretty light, fluffy things I'd like to tell. I just don't have the opportunity right now. Yeah. And, and I wasn't approaching this interview as, as pigeon, pigeonholing you like that. Um, even even <laughs> taking the uh, consideration that, okay, he's got other stories that he likes to tell that aren't in horror just digging into trying to figure out what it is that you like about horror. I feel very stymied in this particular case, because like everything that we've asked you uh, in terms of what it is that you liked about them. I don't know. Like, well, horror and horror and science fiction, both question the human condition. They can, they both bring with them literary, literary depth. If you want to probe it, if you want to mine it, it's there. Um, horror reminds us of how fragile we are as, as living beings. It um, pits us against one another, man and woman. It, just thematically, is ripe. It's a ripe genre for interpretation, just like science fiction is, I think. And so I'm drawn to them that way. But like all the dress up, the the blackness, the ghosts, the spider webs, the the dress up is not something that I'm like I'm not nostalgic about. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I am, I don't know, God, I hate the word, intellectually interested in horror. Mm-hmm. And I do enjoy some good atmosphere. I mean, don't get me wrong. I fucking love some good atmosphere. But, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I like horror just as part of my diet. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a horror fan the way some people are. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I think I get it. It sounds to me like you're you're more of a fan of the core values and less the fanfare, if you will. Yeah, I, I love all movies. Like I, I really, really, I really, really do. I've got a couple thousand DVDs and Blu-rays sitting around me because I'm trying to sell them. If you're interested, go to scottshermer.com. I'm selling my entire collection. <laughs> but horror is the kind of film I make, and for some of the reasons I've talked about already on this podcast Mm -hmm. is that it's it's a good showcase for artistic ability and um and storytelling and it has a a reliable audience do you see any common threads like if if you look at the horror movies that you like do you see any common threads about the kinds of horror that you like in terms of cannibalism or occult metaphysical uh comedy you know is there any interesting you can't say just good movies because that's you know. Of course you know <laughs> I love a, I, I love a good monster movie. Like I'm always on the lookout for a good monster movie because I just love the artistry of how they bring that monster alive. Yeah. Case so, in point, like, I love, or Pumpkinhead. Pumpkinhead for sure, but but I'm trying to think of there aren't ever enough to satisfy me. I mean, I love where a good werewolf movie, but American mm-hmm. Werewolf in London is great. Um. Cloverfield. I had a fun time with Cloverfield. It gets a lot of shit, but you know what? It's a monster movie. And you know what? I get a lot of shit for for liking Jurassic World, but for me, it's another goddamn monster movie. I, I need a good monster movie every now and then. And dinosaurs are good monsters. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it on that level. So I see that thread. I also like um, realistic 
dramatic horror movies, I guess you'd say, something like The Witch, where the paranoia among the characters is really the horror. But I've never really thought about it, so I wasn't really prepared for an answer. That's that's kind of the point of a good question. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, and this is almost tangential, but what is it that you like about monsters? I couldn't tell you. Just on a core level, like when I get off this podcast tonight, if I was going to sit at my TV and go, okay, what do we want to watch now? If you were to tell me there's this really good monster movie you haven't seen, that's the one I would probably want to watch tonight. Hmm. But I've seen Relic, and I've seen Pumpkinhead, and I've seen Gremlins, and I've seen Jurassic World, and I don't know what other monster movies I could see. Uh, I've seen all the Ray Harryhausen movies. Um, I just, it's hard to find them. uh, (coughs) You know, it's kind of funny because our last interview was with somebody who for them, one of the, uh, the core things for them was rebellion. And Mm. in this call, you're kind of just the opposite that you're more about the identification, um, about wanting to identify with the other. I I don't know if that's the right word. Fit in. Fit in is not that bad of a word. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got their rebellion, but my rebellion wasn't against my parents so much as the whole world's way right. of looking at gender and yeah, that yeah. stuff. And, and you mentioned, you know, early in the call, you said that, uh, you know, you kind of felt like you didn't fit in, that there was something different. And, and so I, I could see how that could cause you to want to identify and want to fit in. And so mm-hmm. I didn't ask the question. I maybe should have asked the question, does that looking at it from that perspective, does that identify anything for you in terms of how you approach horror? Cause you did mention question in the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good question actually, because I think I have noticed that in all my stories, I'm trying to get people to think about things that I don't think they think about mm-hmm. to make them less afraid of them. Like plank faces about a guy going into the woods, meeting feral women and being abused by them, but then figuring out, you know what, I kind of like this because I'm kind of suggesting that there's a primal part of us that does want to do that. We're human, noble creatures, but we're still animals, you know? And that's not something most people feel comfortable acknowledging is that they are animals. So I think you're onto something with that one. Maybe you can edit it in there somewhere. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. Because that's the way homosexuality starts out. Like, you don't want to acknowledge that part of yourself because you know nobody likes it. It's a part of yourself that you have to keep secret and not even think about. But if you don't think about it, you're never going to make peace with it. And if you're never going to make peace with it, then you're always going to feel this schizophrenic break in yourself that, that will never heal. And I think a lot of people repress a lot of sexuality. Like, a lot of people can't even look at their own genitals in the mirror. Like... There's just people that are afraid of it. And I think the more that they can try to make peace with sex and gender and fluidity and, and just not let it all freak them out so much, they might uh, feel a lot happier and not as afraid of that stuff. I once looked at my butthole in the mirror for like a good solid two minutes. Really? Just, just to get used to it, you know? I don't want to look at mine. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Chris. <laughs> I'm I'm sitting here having a deep thought about to say something and you <laughs> pop out. Well, yeah, I've stared at my over two minutes. Hey man, world changing. You should check your butt out. You should check your butthole out sometimes. 
I can't take me anywhere. <laughs> well, what I was what I was thinking of was, you know, you mentioned about the homosexuality, and then there are some people who can't even look at their own gender, uh, their own um, sexual Balls. organs. That too, and <laughs> it, it reminded me of something that you said earlier on the call of uh, nudity equating to vulnerability which being mm-hmm. symbolic in the movies you know that's why the people who have sex are the ones who get killed um mm. yep but also addressing what you just said about plank face and this guy that then goes out and i think you said wanting to kill uh the the feral woman that he finds you know addressing the addressing the thing that you're afraid to address um mm-hmm. It makes you a less fearful person. And some people don't like that. They don't want you to be. I think people are threatened by, let's for let's call them Nellie Queens, for example. And I remember before I was out, I also felt weird about really flamboyant gay characters, people. If they lisp and had the limp wrists and all the other stereotypical qualities, I didn't feel comfortable about that. And lo and behold, it's because I wasn't comfortable about that part of myself. Because now I don't give, I don't have any problem at all. There are some people that that's just how their their energy manifests, and it's a really an, just they couldn't hide it if they tried, mm-hmm. and um, and that, that doesn't bother me. But I still see that that bothers some people, and it's not a problem with the person that has that energy. It's a problem with the person who has a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as sooner that you can deep, dig deep into yourself and ask yourself, why do I have a problem with that? it might lead you on the path to figuring out why you have that problem, addressing it and becoming a better person as a result, probably a gay person, but a better person nonetheless. You know, I'm glad that we, uh, that I asked an additional question and kept going. Cause I think now earlier I was struggling for a summary. Maybe now we have one, um, maybe confronting mm-hmm. your demons. Yeah. Confronting your demons. That's a, that's, that's good. Mm. That really is interesting, actually. Yeah, because I did a short film called "The Day Joe Left," and it's literally a guy confronting his demon manifest outside of himself, kind of haunting him. He strikes his wife in a domestic abuse situation, and his demon's trying to get him to kill her, and he's like fighting to not do that because he knows it's the wrong thing to do. Literally, a demon. Hmm. Yeah, that's. Def- I think you found something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Good. I'm glad that I asked the question. Then, yeah, you know, Chris and I have had a sort of a friendly debate about, you know, should we dig deeper or should we take the first question or first answer? And I, I can see his point of wanting it to be a fun a fun call. Um, my response yeah. to him was that, uh, you know, for some people this is fun. Um, I just didn't want you to keep badgering people, man. You're like, God damn, man, take the answer. <laughs> no, it was a good balance. <laughs> It's no, a good no. balance. And and that's yeah. what I said to him was that I, I said, you know, and you mentioned therapy, so I'll bring that up. You know, when you go through some of this stuff, you kind of get uh you you get to learn a gauge where where you can tell, you know, what's comfortable, what's not comfortable, where can I go, mm-hmm. when when's it when's enough. Yeah. Um it's like waiting tables. So you gotta read the table before you start pitching. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've got a good goal then because keeping it conversational and fun mm-hmm. is one side of the spectrum and the other one is kind of digging deep and talking about things people – that's more than just small talk, you know? Yeah. Something yeah. that like 
the listener will actually hopefully identify with and want to like listen to. Right. And that's another good reason that Chris and I are a good pair for this because, you know, he can balance out that, that part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bring up mindless chatter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Again, thank you, Scott. No problem. Chris, that was your cue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Scott, once again for joining us. And thank you to anyone out there listening. Again, please do come visit us at horrormakesushappy.com. We've got a schedule posted there to see to show you who we're going to be interviewing next and uh, plus a list of who we'd like to interview. So if anybody out there knows any of these people or has any connections with them, please do let us know. We've also got social media links to our Facebook page and Patreon if you want to become a supporter. You do become a Patreon supporter. We uh, we have the full unedited lists of every one of these podcasts with fuck-ups and everything. So there's that. Or in general, just uh, come let us know how we're doing. Or it makes us happy.com. 